The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, October 2nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am just back from Texas. I can tell you I was there to report on the Beto O'Rourke versus Ted Cruz election. Not really true. I was there to do a talk, give a panel discussion. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. It's part of uh, uh, the Slate Day at the Trib Fest. But what, what I learned about Beto? Guy has all the momentum. Until... They uncovered a review that he wrote in 1991 of the Will Rogers Follies. Beto referred to, quote, perma-smile actresses whose only qualifications seem to be their phenomenally large breasts and tight buttocks. And you thought Ted Cruz was the humorless schoolmarm. Beto is literally channeling the church lady. I think the bigger sin for Texas audiences is that Beto is, in a roundabout way, denigrating Will Rogers. And Texans love Will Rogers. Will Rogers never met a man he didn't like. Of course, he died 35 years before Ted Cruz was born, so that explains a lot of things. Everywhere I went, people were crazy for Beto. And let me tell you what that means. Nothing. It means nothing. I went to Austin and then San Antonio and a cavern in between where the stalagmites didn't take a stance. Texas has not elected a Democrat to statewide office in almost a quarter decade, since 1994. It is the longest Democratic shutout anywhere. And you probably heard that stat, but do you know what it means? Do you know the extent of the shutout? We're not just talking, maybe in your state, you elect statewide. It's a governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, probably comptroller or comptroller, depending on how they define it. Not Texas. They elect everyone. Those that I said, then the secretary of state, then the treasurer and the controller and an auditor and a superintendent of schools and an insurance commissioner, and an agriculture commissioner, and a natural resources commissioner, bang up job their guy, and a labor commissioner, and a public service commissioner. And that's not all. They elect every seat on two courts. They elect the state Supreme Court, and they elect a tax court, and they have not elected a Democrat. No Democrat has served on the highest courts for the last 20 years. If Beto is to beat back this, he will beat back time and republicanism and maybe ted cruz maybe just maybe on the show today i spiel about mothers of sons and devils and triangles but first like i said i was at trib fest where different slate podcasts were i've been listening to these slate podcasts you probably know that you've been hearing a lot of tape of slate podcasters talking to people well here's my contribution i spoke with neil katyal who is a former obama solicitor general he's argued over 35 cases before the supreme court And he had a lot to say about Kavanaugh and the Mueller investigation because he wrote the rules. Now I bring you my interview with Neil Katyal, the former Solicitor General, and I began by talking about a move that he pulled, not before the Kavanaugh nomination, but the Gorsuch one. There was Katyal, Clinton staffer, Obama staffer, liberal stalwart, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, vouching for Gorsuch's integrity. Indeed, there's less than a handful of people that the president could have nominated to even start to rebuild that loss of trust. But in my opinion, Neil Gorsuch is one. I say that knowing many people in my party will disagree and think the damage cannot be repaired no matter who the nominee is. I can understand that sentiment. For those folks, there's nothing I can say about the nominee to make things right. So my first question to 
Katyal was, why do you say that? I think this is really important. There's a big difference between the Gorsuch confirmation and the Kavanaugh one, which is Justice Gorsuch was replacing Justice Scalia. There was really not much of a change in the composition of the Supreme Court when you have Gorsuch in versus Scalia. I mean, they have some differences, but they're really minor. And, you know, frankly, at the time when Trump did this 10 days into his term as president, you know, I was glad. I thought he was going to nominate Judge Judy. So, like, you know... I was like, wow, he's actually a real judge. Um, so, um, <laughs> should at least keep Roe versus Wade intact, though. <laughs> um, so, but you see, because that seat was the Scalia seat in which Justice Scalia was going to vote against Roe every chance he got, it didn't change much to have Justice Gorsuch on the court. Kavanaugh for Kennedy is everything. I mean, that's the thing. This is the most supreme, most important confirmation in our lifetimes. It was even before the events of the last two weeks. The stakes here are astronomical. Why? There are nine justices on the court. The court has been divided for the last few years with five Republican appointees and four Democratic appointees. But the Justice Kennedy, who was a Republican appointee, sat basically in the middle on some cases. That is, he voted with the Democratic appointees in big, important things. Abortion, same-sex marriage, greenhouse gas regulation. I've argued 37 times before Justice Kennedy. Every single time you went up there and you knew he was listening, it was clear his mind hadn't been made up. A lot of times, some of his colleagues, their minds made up before you walk in. But his was always open. And so that's what we're losing. You know, that's the justice we're losing. And now the question is, who's he being replaced with? And, you know, I think there's this incredible conversation we've been having over the last couple of weeks based on not really the stakes of the legal issues, you know, abortion, affirmative action, and so on, but really about how we treat women. Forget about Kavanaugh for a minute. This is a really important issue. And I think it has to be talked about. But there's also this other conversation about the direction of the court. And I think we need to be having both of them. So your analysis there was that the stakes were different with Gorsuch and his nomination because the space between the anticipated rulings of a Gorsuch and a Scalia was not that vast. The space between the perceived rulings of a Kennedy and a Kavanaugh is vast. But if Kavanaugh were the nominee then, would you say about him what you said about Gorsuch? Would you hold him up as one of the leading? And yes, granted, you may be appearing before him. We know this, but among conservative jurists, among Federalist Society, Leonard Leo approved jurists, is Kavanaugh the equal to Gorsuch, right. do so you think? It's very hard to, you know, think, you know, and put yourself into that counterfactual. But look, I think, I think on everyone's list, um, of the top conservative thinker, legal thinkers, Judge Kavanaugh was on every single one of those lists. For my mind, I would have put Jeffrey Sutton of the Sixth Circuit on, um, who is deeply conservative, a brilliant judge, sits in Ohio, but the one thing he did was he upheld Obamacare, and he was the first judge, Republican judge, to do that. And for that reason, that one decision, he's not on any shortlist. And that, to me, is unforgivable, because that's what being a judge is all about. Being a judge is all about, like, doing the thing that's right under the law, even if it's against your political preferences. And the idea that he's not on the list, you know, that just shows you what this nomination process has become. You can only put people who are true believers on these lists and no one else. I would just like to read a quote that he said. 
There's been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about Donald Trump in the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. That's a mixture of true and debatable, but I lit upon that phrase about revenge on behalf of the Clintons. And my question is, not just the tone and tenor, but when statements like that go into the record um, and were he to sit on the Supreme Court, would that be an unprecedented situation that would seriously bring into question the institution or institutionality of the court? You know, those were pretty extraordinary statements. My heart sank when I heard Judge Kavanaugh say those things. Nobody, I think, can judge the position he must have been in. Um, you know, I, I can't even begin to imagine it. But these are really unfortunate statements. Um, you know, the Supreme Court is our crown jewel in our democracy for a reason, which is you go up there and you feel like you should be able to be treated fairly and your case heard with an open mind. Um, and, you know, my very first case was uh, defending bin Laden's driver, who was at Guantanamo. And um, when I won that case, I remember coming out to the cameras, like 500 cameras on the Supreme Court steps, and they're all like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I said, here's what it means. You know, the decision was 184 pages. None of us had read it yet. But here's what it means. It means in America, you can have the lowest of the low guy, the guy who's, you know, he's being the worst guy ever, you know, bin Laden's associate, and he can bring his case against not just anyone, but the highest officer in the land, the most powerful man in the world, the president of the United States, and he can bring his case not just in some rinky-dink traffic court, but in the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the land, and he can win. That's what makes our Supreme Court so special. And every time we chip away at that, I think we lose something really, really profound. So his invoking partisanship blatantly uh, that does seem to be a break from how past Supreme Court justices have comported themselves. I'm not just talking about the anger. And listen, we've had Supreme Court justices who are elected officials from declared parties, and it's not uh, it's not a question where the political leanings of some Supreme Court justices are. I'm talking about to get on the court, he uses a specifically political argument calling out the candidate from one party and backing the candidate from another. That's new, I think. To my knowledge, it is. Maybe there was something uh, in the past, whether it's new or old, it's definitely deeply, deeply unfortunate. And now there's a question. Some people are saying he'll have to recuse from this case or that case if he's confirmed. But the thing about the Supreme Court is because there's nine of them and they're not fungible, they can't be replaced. That is, if one of them is out and recused for whatever reason, you can't go and take some judge from the lower court or something like that. It means that justice is missing altogether. And so there are only eight justices hearing a case or sometimes seven or something like that. And for that reason, recusal rules at the Supreme Court are totally different than the rest of the courts. It's really hard to get someone to recuse. So like there's a whole debate. If he's confirmed, will Judge Kavanaugh recuse from can you subpoena President Trump and all of that stuff? The answer to that is very clear. He's not going to recuse from that because the Supreme Court recusal rules really uh, basically ask him to sit in those kinds of cases. Okay, let's talk about your authorship uh, when you were in the Obama administration 
of the rules around special counsels. What was your remit? Remind us of what was the problem and what was the problem you were trying to solve in writing the rules. Okay, great. So first of all, this is actually, these rules that I wrote go back to the Clinton administration when I was in that. So I was a young pup. I was 27 years old. And Miss Reno asks me uh, to convene a working group to decide how to think about the prosecution of presidents. We had something called the Independent Counsel Act, and Ken Starr was appointed under it, and he was launching the Whitewater and Lewinsky probes right then. Indeed, my very first day of work at the Justice Department was the day that his deputy came in and asked Eric Holder to wire Linda Tripp. That was day one. Okay, so Ms. Reno says, this law is going to expire we should really think about, is this the right way to do this? A kind of totally independent prosecutor, unmoored from any sort of checks and balances who can do what she or he wants? Or should we think about something else? And so over 18 months, I convened this working group. We thought about it and we said we should do something else. Why? Because of one real fundamental idea, which is independence is a really good value and we want to embrace it in prosecutors. But so, too, is accountability. We want some sort of check on them. Independence and accountability are mutually exclusive. The more you have of one, the less you have of the other. We felt the Independent Counsel Act spent too much emphasis on independence, not enough on accountability. And that's why you had sprawling Iran-Contra investigations and the like, and Lewinsky. So we tried to make it more centered. And so we wrote these rules They were approved by a bipartisan basis by both Republicans and Democrats alike. Ken Starr testified. He went to the Hill and testified in favor of these rules and said it's better than the Independent Counsel Act, even though I'm a sitting independent counsel. So there's a wide degree of buy-in. And the whole idea is that the attorney general will appoint someone of unquestioned integrity to look into high-level executive branch wrongdoing when there's a credible reason to do so. And that's exactly what happened here. The acting attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, the number two, appointed Bob Mueller. Mueller is a Republican-appointed FBI director, the head of the FBI. I mean, this is a you know former Marine, someone who, until President Trump tried to destroy his reputation, basically had the best reputation in town, in D.C., across all political lines. I mean, just consider the straightest of shooters. um, And, you know, President Trump has really tried to drag his name through the mud, but, uh, you know, I suspect that Mueller will have the last laugh on this because I, you know, I think Mueller's as thorough an investigator as they come and I suspect fireworks will follow. How much do you then, as the, as the author of the new rules, how much do you credit the idea that, uh, sitting president cannot be indicted? And the second part is how much do you think the Justice Department credits that idea? Right. So the special counsel regulations don't get into this question except to say the special counsel shall follow established Department of Justice rules. And if he wants to break from them, he needs to get the permission of the attorney general or here the acting attorney general. Now, there are two opinions that have been written by the Justice Department in Nixon and Clinton that say you can't indict a sitting president, that it'll distract from their duties and the like. And so that is the established position. Now, I think it's fair to say that that established position doesn't really actually talk about indictment. That's more about the trial, the actual bringing to trial 
of a sitting president, which you could imagine could be very distracting because, you know, the president's got golf games to play. And, uh, you know, so regardless of that, we want to bracket, you know, he wants to have his time to, you know, insult our neighbors and, uh, and golf. Um, but, you know, that's about the trial. This is a separate question. Can you bring criminal charges against him? That these two Justice Department opinions haven't really analyzed with any depth. So here's what I think is going to happen. If Mueller has the goods, and I have no idea if he does, but if Mueller has the goods on Trump, I think he's going to ask the Justice Department, Rod Rosenstein, to indict him. Not to try him, but to indict him. And here's why I think the regulations we wrote tip in that direction. As I said, if Mueller wants to deviate, he's got to actually get permission. If the rules say that we wrote in 1999, if the attorney general or the acting attorney general says no to a special counsel request, it's got to be reported to Congress. And that's a way for Mueller to ensure that Congress knows about what he is doing and about the record that suggests, yes, this president did commit crimes. Now, I wrote a piece this week in the Washington Post that said Rosenstein could do this now. If Rosenstein's worried about being fired next week, he could issue a report to Congress that lays out some of what the investigation has found thus far in order to make sure that that sees the light of day. And I do think we have to be worried about cover-ups. I mean, Trump is, to me, the greatest threat to our democracy in our lifetimes. And by the way, I just, I don't know if people know this, but I think when people think about history of special counsels, Watergate too weak, maybe Ken Starr too far, but there were so many special counsel investigations that history has forgotten. Hamilton Fish, who was a staffer for Jimmy Carter, was investigated by a special counsel based on Roy Cohn's say-so that he saw the guy doing coke at Studio 54. And the Carter administration had to live with this, and there was nothing there, but this would frequently flummox uh, presidencies. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, this is a, this goes back a long time. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Trump is you can compare Trump to Nixon, and actually Trump is far worse in the treatment of the special counsel than even Nixon. Basically, if you look back at what Nixon did, Nixon said, I will not fire the special prosecutor without the concurrence of both the majority and minority in Congress. He assured the special prosecutor that he would have independence to do his job, Leon Jaworski. So Trump hasn't even agreed to something like that. Instead, he you know, keeps on tweeting and threatening not just the Justice Department, but Mueller himself. I mean, I can't think of something that is worse for a president to possibly be doing. Neil Katyal, everyone. Thank you, Neil. Neil's going to go now. And now the spiel. Donald Trump Jr. says, in this day and age, he fears more for his sons than his daughters. I would fear for my sons, too, if Donald Trump Jr. were their male role model. Donald Trump Sr., you know, it was kind of nice. He finally acknowledged the effect of erosion of blue-collar labor and just leveled with the American public and said that steel mills and coal mines aren't coming back. 
It's a very scary time for oh, young men in America. Obviously, he wasn't leveling with anyone. He was digging in his own sense of grievance. America, when you can be uh, guilty of something that you may not be guilty of. This is a very, very, this is a very difficult time. What's happening here has much more to do than even the appointment of a Supreme Court justice. It really does. You could be somebody that was perfect your entire life, and somebody could accuse you of something. Doesn't necessarily have to be a woman, as everybody say, but somebody could accuse you of something, and you're automatically guilty. But in this realm, you are truly guilty until proven innocent. That's one of the very, very bad things that's taking place right now. Wow. Was that maybe a recognition and apology to Yusuf Salam, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Raymond Santana, and Corey Wise? You know, the Central Park Five, whose execution Trump called for, even though they were cleared of raping a jogger in Central Park. They did serve at least five years each, more closer to seven. One served 11 and a half years. Nope, he never cleared that up. The sex panic that he's talking about now is the Me Too movement. And I do have to say, I think there have been some excesses of the Me Too movement, but victims, real victims, I don't know, maybe Aziz Ansari uh, was unfairly described in a way. I think we've come around to think that he went on a very bad date and perhaps acted in a way that we wouldn't want people to act under the best circumstances. But what did he lose? Why would it be scary for him? Got his Netflix show back. He's selling out club dates. There are a couple of journalists who lost jobs. I think most of them have regained them or their transgressions were so bad that they rendered themselves unemployable. I can't really think of too many actual victims. Like, yeah, that guy was totally unfairly accused. Like the Duke lacrosse kids were unfairly accused or that Rolling Stone UVA case. But of course, those cases predate the Me Too movement. In the Duke case, it predates it by a decade. So I suppose the president saying, no, there is a victim and his name is Brett Kavanaugh. The president isn't doing anything to advance the argument. All he's really doing is trying to convince the people who are already convinced that Brett Kavanaugh would be a good Supreme Court justice. What he's really doing is talking to men. The poll out today on Huffington Post, male Trump voters back Kavanaugh. Well, there's there's a large not sure vote, but male Trump voters who identify with Blasey Ford, that is 3%. Whereas female Clinton voters who identify with Brett Kavanaugh, that is 4%. That's not surprising. Overall, men identified with Kavanaugh over Ford, 23 to 15%. The almost mirror opposite, women identified with Blasey Ford over Kavanaugh, 24 to 14%. Another poll today by Quinnipiac shows that women oppose confirmation 55 to 37, men support it 49 to 40. Men, women, these are not exact categories. There is another category, a depth unplumbed that we've been hearing about. It's not addressed just by saying womanhood or even that more specific and in Trump circles, exalted version of womanhood called motherhood. It is a special category of mothers It's not just about the offspring. It's about the specific gender of the offspring. You know, this idea that moms of sons uh, worry that perhaps if their son is innocent in the current environment, he may not have a chance at fairness. Does that ring true for any any of you? Yes. 
No. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Let's start here. What, what, well, it does. I mean, because we're looking at this, right? And I had my... Yes, mothers of sons. Well, if you are, say, Ivanka Trump and your sons are Don Jr. and Eric, then yeah, I would be very concerned about those sons. But I don't think the mothers of sons lines is meant to appeal to mothers of large adult sons. No, I think it's meant to evoke the moms with little ones bopping on their knees or chasing fireflies and dragging a stick along the side of a picket fence. Chunka, 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 as they merrily run into the twilight. How can I protect those boys? There is a menace stalking them. And that menace is some future girl accuser. And what can I do? Can I, as a mother of a son, can I possibly teach these sons respect? Can I have a talk with them? Can I maybe raise them not to treat girls in a way that I, who was once a girl, wouldn't want to be treated? Is that possible? No, that's impossible. The only thing you can do is worry about them. Worry about this mass overcorrection because they're coming for your son. What if my son doesn't abuse anyone? Doesn't matter. Look at Brett Kavanaugh. I am looking at Brett Kavanaugh. No, look at him some other way. That helped my argument. Yeah. I understand. Mothers can't possibly change boys' behavior. Science tells us that, right? All they can do is fret about the future accusers, just like that poor Brett Kavanaugh, who is exactly the blackout drunk. No, sorry, the varsity athlete. As a cornerback, wide receiver. The cornerback, no less. The exact kind of boy that every mother would want to raise. He could be your son. He is nothing if not a monument to good mothering. He's a keg stand to virtue. He was as well-raised as that three-beer-bong funnel on the Kappa Epsilon wall. Look, here's what I think is really going on with the evocation of mothers of sons. I've seen zero polling that shows that mothers of sons have a different take than just women in general or mothers in general or mothers of daughters. Maybe there's a slight effect No one's shown it. Lots of people have asserted it. Why? Why are they saying it? I think it's a lot like that argument that men sometimes offer. Well, you know, as the father of daughters, me too really hits home. And Or I can say this, as the father of daughters, we have to treat women with respect. Well, let me say this. I, as the uncle of bedwetters, as the cousin of accountants, one third cousin who's not such a good accountant, but a first cousin who's really bang up accountant. Where's an I shade and everything. As a friend of a farmer, as a man for all seasons, as a friend to the land, as a, as a fellow who sowed the wind, and you know what that means. You sowed the wind. For decades to come, I fear that the whole country will reap the whirlwind. As the reaper of whirlwind, as the destroyer of worlds, as the brother-in-law of a really big Clapton fan, let me assert that I have standing to say this. Mothers of Sons is a terrible argument. When you say mothers of sons, you're implying that, well, I'd have a hard time empathizing, but for my son. When you say fathers of daughters, it's like you're saying, I can't really comprehend what's going on to someone else, except if I can exactly identify with them through my precise situation. They don't see people as other people deserving of justice in this world. It's, well, he's a member of my tribe or even closer than a tribe, my exact family. In fact, when people say the father of daughters or mothers of sons, I don't think they're actually sharing their status to say, this is what brought me to a realization. I think they had the realization, they had the opinion, and they're coaching this opinion that they'd have anyway in a manner that seems unselfish. And also, maybe they're trying to convince other mothers of sons or fathers of daughters to come to their side. It seems like an appeal to a consideration outside the self. But it's not. It's not really what's your family but an extension of yourself? It's a selfish appeal to want to protect your offspring. Even a lizard will protect its eggs. Instead of evoking your special status as mother 
of sons or fathers of daughters. I think the best argument lies in the status that makes you exquisitely non-unique. The thing that you share with literally everyone, your humanity. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bietame and Daniel Schrader are the GIST producers. Deep in the heart of Texas, Daniel was actually not there. But TJ Raphael was. Deep in the heart of Texas, the stars at night have phenomenally large buttocks. I should tell you that Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Deep in the Heart of Texas. But also he wasn't there. The gist. I have unearthed Ted Cruz's 1991 review of the Broadway musical Cats. It is one word, and that word says delicious. Strange. Oomperoo, dapperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.